If you're new or you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're in a series that we've been in for the summer uh, that we've titled Guard Your Hearts. And uh, our, our hope with this or our intent with this has been to kind of explore the ways that the scripture teaches us or gives us direction about what's happening inside of us at an, at an emotional level or at a heart level. Because as we saw in week one from Proverbs chapter four, uh, where the writer of Proverbs tells us to guard our heart above all else, for from it flows all of life. As we talked about that in week one, we saw that really the, the way that we walk out this thing called life begins at, at, at a heart level or at an emotional level. So we talked about that and how discipleship or following Jesus is really a process of growing not only into the image and likeness of Jesus, but also uh, being developed into a state of emotional maturity. That, as we said in, in week one, it's impossible to grow spiritually and remain emotionally immature. And as we kind of zoomed in on that idea, we looked at places like the fruit of the Spirit, where Paul tells us there that the disposition of a person who is possessed by the Spirit of God himself uh, takes on a particular uh, form, that we become more patient and more kind. We become gentle. Um, we, we, have, we exercise self-control. And so at a heart level, we're fundamentally changed by the Spirit of God. And then last, last time we were in this series was two weeks ago. We took a break last week, but two weeks ago, we looked specifically at this event in the life of the prophet Elijah, and we, we zoomed in on the idea of disappointment, that, that there's this prevailing assumption of the heart that we can always maybe uh, live at a high level, and then sometimes disappointment sneaks up on us. That space between uh, our, our expectations and our reality gets filled with disappointment, and that can lead to, if we're not careful, discouragement. As we looked at the life of, of, of Elijah and how he had had this uh, string of wins, he, he, he was batting a thousand. Everything he was saying on behalf of the Lord was coming to pass. Uh, he was killing it professionally. And then out of nowhere, he gets word that he's still being threatened by Jezebel. And all of a sudden, he sinks from the height of his, uh, of his role as a prophet down into utter despair, crying out, Lord, just kill me. I'm no better than any of my father's. And so the Lord, in his mercy, gives, gives Elijah a nap. He gives him a couple of meals. And then he meets him in a still, small voice and begins to deal with what's happening in his heart, namely this idea of discouragement. And so today I want to kind of go in that same theme. We're going to look at the life of Moses in this one somewhat strange episode in the book of Exodus, a, a, a bridge in the narrative. Up until this point, it's been fairly consistent. God has told Moses that he aspires to free his people from uh, the oppressive hand of Pharaoh and from their slavery and captivity in Egypt. And God does exactly what he says he's going to do, and he uses Moses as his mediator to do it. And so you see Moses speaking on behalf of Yahweh, the Lord. God meets him in a burning bush. Moses is thriving. He's come before the Lord and said the things that, that needed to be said, and God has commissioned him and sent him out. And so Moses has seen fire from heaven. He's seen locusts and blood in the rivers and the, the, the Red Sea itself part. He's hit a rock with a stick, and water came out in the desert. He's traveling by a cloud of fire, and a cloud and, and a pillar of fire, and, and he's even seen bread from heaven come down. Moses is good. And here, right before he goes to the mountain of God, right before he reconvenes the people of God at Sinai and receives the law of God and the covenant with God, Moses has this brief episode with his father-in-law where he receives some correction 
where he learns about his limitations and ultimately what I think today is important for us, where he begins to have his heart set in the right direction so as to prevent losing heart in the process. Look look with me, if you will, in Exodus 18, beginning in verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he had said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he had said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with, the sons, with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his, told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord uh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has, has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is it that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people. Men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and of hundreds of fifties and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads of the people, chiefs of tens, of thousands, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is the word of the Lord. So I've been reading and studying quite a bit about um, the idea of burnout over the past couple of years. And much of what we've been dealing with in this series is a result of 
that study and that, that endeavor. And the impetus or the driving force behind all of that has been my own heart and issues. So back in late fall, maybe of 2021, I found myself at a place of just sort of uh, barely getting by at an emotional, spiritual level. Like I, I was drained and I thought, what is this that I'm going through? And so I talked to some friends, talked to a counselor and realized, oh, this is this is what burnout is. And I had always thought or always assumed, and maybe you have as well, that burnout is just the result of being overworked. That if you work too much and rest too little, you'll wind up being burnt out. And I realized workload, work capacity, actually has almost nothing to do with whether or not a person winds up in a place of burnout. Burnout is actually the result of not being able to live up to the expectations that are either real or imagined that others or you yourself have placed on yourself. It's this, this gap that never kind of closes between what you should be, what you should be doing, what you should be accomplishing, and where you are. And that space, the more you dwell upon it, spin around it, get on the treadmill trying to close that gap, only seems to grow with the, with the more expectations that you place upon yourself. It never seems to go away. This is why Sabbath or rest can't ever really address burnout, because when you're resting, you're mostly thinking about what you should be doing. And so you stay on that treadmill, and it just keeps churning and going faster and greater and, and, and building over time. And most folks, like myself, I think, just believe that if I could just stop working for a minute, then this would go away, when in fact, the issue resides, as we've been studying, not in your workload, not in your activity. It starts in the heart. And one of the things about burnout that I've learned as well is that what tends to happen, the way that our expectations get out of joint, the way that we begin kind of metastasizing what we should be doing and that never-ending checklist only continues to grow such that we can't get off the treadmill, we can't slow down, we can't stop thinking about what needs to be done next. One of the ways that all of that starts to kind of go off the rails for us is that we overestimate what we're capable of and we underestimate what God is capable of. We, we, we begin to believe that there is some measure of God-like activity that we can achieve if we just tried a little bit harder. But in so doing, we also minimize what God is capable of. We downplay his sovereignty. We, we downplay his omniscience and, and his power. We, 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 we dial back who he is and what he's capable of because, because always burnout is the result of a lack of faith as well. It's a lack of trust in what God can do in us and through us. It's a, it's a belief in self-sovereignty. If it is to be, it is up to me. And so this passage here in Exodus 18 that just kind of intrudes in the narrative of like, I thought the whole goal was for God to get his people out of slavery and get them into the promised land. Why do we have this strange episode with a father-in-law telling a son-in-law that he needs to, 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 to set up and organize the people in a different way, lest he not only wear himself out, but also all the people? Because that's also what burnout does. When a person is on the trail of burnout, when they have these expectations they can't live up to, they start scapegoating that on other people as well. No one else is living up to the expectations. And so it begins to just disseminate out into the people, and eventually everyone's exhausted. So why, why would God put this in the middle, right between the deliverance of, of Israel and the giving of the law? Well, I believe it's because... People can't receive the good news of, of God's word for them. We can't walk in faith and, and obey the, the word of the Lord from a place where we believe we have that power within ourselves to do it. In other words, dependence, faith, trust is the beginning point of getting off the treadmill of burnout and beginning to walk with the Lord in the capacity and with the limitations that he has assigned to us. 
I want to show you three things today from this passage that I think is super important for how we begin to work all this out and, and how we begin to understand what it looks like to be a people who accept our limitations and what we need in the wilderness. Because we're all in the wilderness. The space that, that, that Israel occupies in this particular part of the book of Exodus is the, is the life that, that we live as well. Especially if you're a Christian today, you've experienced liberation, you've experienced salvation, you've been freed from the oppressive hand, not just of, a, of an external ruler or authority, you've been freed from Satan, sin, death, and hell. But you're not yet in the promised land, and so you wander around in a place that sometimes seem, seems confusing, where the answers that you seek can't be found, where you don't have what it takes in and of yourself to make it a state of dependence, a state where God beckons you to trust him, to believe that he's actually taking you where he wants you to go. Three things I want to show you about how we're going to make it through the wilderness, how we're going to guard our heart in this particular season. The first thing that we see is that we need an awareness of God's love and of God's power. We need an awareness of God's love and of God's power. I've read this quote several times over the past several years. It's one of my favorite quotes written outside the scripture, perhaps. It comes from The Knowledge of the Holy by a pastor named A.W. Tozer back in the, I think in the 60s he wrote this, some 50, 60 years ago. And Tozer was talking about how uh, the people of God find themselves exhausted over work. They find themselves trying to churn out fervor from others and always stay motivated and, and, and compelled to do the things for God. And we do that often because we minimize what God is capable of. We think that God needs our help. We lose sight of how powerful God actually is. Tozer writes, Almighty God, because he is almighty, needs no support the picture of a nervous, ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet, if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is not greater for our being, nor would he be less if we did not exist. Probably the hardest thought of all for our natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need our help. We commonly represent him as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking to help carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. Too many missionary appeals are based on this fancied frustration of Almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers, not only for the heathens, but for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for want of support. I fear that thousands of young persons enter Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. Add to this a certain degree of commendable idealism and a fair amount of compassion for the underprivileged, and you have the true drive behind much Christian activity today. Also known as a recipe for burnout. The idea that Almighty God has gotten himself into a pickle and he needs us to bail him out because his limited abilities and his lack of power can't deliver. He needs us. And that's part of the reason why I start this idea with if we're going to make it through the wilderness, we need an awareness of God's love and power. Because the opening scene of this episode, before Jethro confronts Moses and says, you need to set up and establish some order and empower some people to do the work as well. Before we even get there, it starts with what should be at least a mind-blowing scene where Jethro, we're told, a pagan priest, Jethro, a Gentile. 
Jethro, an outsider to the things of God. He's not a Jew. He's not an Israelite. Comes to meet Moses and brings Moses' wife and sons back to him after the skirmish in, 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 in Egypt so that they can be reunited. And whenever it says that, that, that Moses goes into the tent with him and Moses tells Jethro all that the Lord has done, Jethro converts. We have a conversion episode here where a Gentile's, his mind is blown. His awareness of who God is and what God is capable of begins to expand. And in so doing, it sets him up to be able to correct what he sees Moses doing that is incorrect. He's able to, to rebuke him because he's like, hey, Moses, remember the story you just told me. How a God rescued and delivered his people through a multitude of miracles. And now here you are thinking that you're the center of the universe. And in order for all the people to know and understand God, they need you. You you see the problem. 24 hours, perhaps, between his conversion and this confrontation, Jethro gets it. He says, look, this can't be the case. If God could get you out of Egypt... If he could take down the ruler of the most prosperous nation on the planet at that time and deliver you without even lifting a finger, why do the people have to go through you? I mean, I get it. You're the mediator, but come on, man. You just told me the story. Look back. Look back with me in verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he had encamped. And when he sent word to Moses, he said, I'm your father-in-law. I'm coming with your wife. Verse 7, Moses went out. And met his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other the welfare. And they went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way. And how the Lord had delivered him. In verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. And the hand that he, had, that he had delivered them out of. The hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, verse 10. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And then we see, we see Jethro do something that's, that's indicative of a conversion here. So he, he comes and he meets with Moses and he's had this awakening or this awareness to God's love and, and, and to, to his power. And he sees that God is good and he sees that God is all powerful. Moses reports that news. Jethro rejoices. And then Jethro begins to share something. Now, this is an important detail that we would generally, I think, just skip over quickly. Look at what it says next. It says, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. That's an expensive expensive price to pay. That's a big deal. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to do what? To eat bread. Huh. Where did the bread come from? If you know the story of Israel, the bread that they've been receiving is manna. They don't even know what it is. They say, what is it? That's what manna means. And everyone's pretty sick and tired of eating manna at this point. Moses' father-in-law, who has just had this awakening to God's love and power, shares what is apparently a very rare commodity at this point in time. Because he's aware of God's love and of God's power and God's provision and what God can supply for people in need, he says, look, guys, I got some bread. And so Aaron and all the elders are like, hey, there's a party in Moses' tent. We get a break from the manna. Someone brought bread, and they make a mad dash over there to have bread with them. And this is a foreshadowing. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus' communion with his disciples, an act of believing in faith that, no, you don't have what it takes, but I will supply what you need when you need it. I will give you what is required. 
I will lay down my life. I will have my body broken for your sins, my blood shed to cover your sins, so that in those moments, in those meals, you can foreshadow and see what God was up to on the cross and ultimately what God would supply for all of us. In other words, an awareness of God's love and awareness of God's power leads us in faith to, to trust and, and, and to receive and to rejoice and it's absolutely essential for the people of God who find themselves perhaps on the, perhaps on the brink of burnout in a culture that does not know how to rest, in a, in a society with technological advance, advancements that keep us from ever turning it off, from ever unplugging, from ever detaching from, from work or the expectations that are thrust upon us, a people need to know God is capable of anything he wants to be capable of. God can do all things. And as that awareness grows and as we see how much he loves us and as we see how much he provides We can rejoice. We can set a table. We can even receive correction. Because that's what I believe happens for Moses in this event. Moses is the deliverer of the good news. He sets Jethro down and says, Jethro, I've got a wild story to tell you. You'll never believe what happened. God said these plagues would happen. All of them happened just as he said. God split the Red Sea in two. We walked across on dry land. Jethro, you're not going to believe this. I hit a rock with a stick and water came out. So he delivers the good news. Jethro converts and rejoices. But even in delivering the good news, I believe Moses is now primed to receive correction. He is reminded as he tells the story, the good news of God's deliverance, that he's not the one in control. He can receive good news from a convert who's less than one day into following Yahweh. He can can be challenged and corrected. He can be rebuked and say, you know what? This guy may have something to teach me. That's the second second thing that we see. If we're going to make it in the wilderness, if our heart is going to be guarded, we have got to learn to accept our limitations. Go back again. Look at verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is it that you are doing for the people? Moses, what's going on here? Catch you up to speed. What's this little thing you got going? And listen to Moses' response, because this is how often we find ourselves in a state where we, where we can't get off the treadmill, where we can't stop, where we're always burnt out. Listen to what Moses is saying here, because he loves, he, he does something that we love to do. He baptizes his activity with spiritual language. He, he, he gives his activity a, a, a disclaimer that allows him to wear himself out. He says, well, look, why, why, why am I doing this? Why do you sit alone and the people come to you from morning until evening? Verse 15, and Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to inquire of God. And you can hear him saying it like there. They come to me because they need to know the Lord, and I'm the, I'm the only one. Listen, old man, essentially. Rewind the tapes. I told you yesterday. If that hadn't been for me, they would have never got delivered. I had the staff. I hit the rock. I brought the message. I was the one in the middle of all that. I'm the mediator. They come to me. And then listen to what Jethro responds. Verse 17. What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, I believe had Moses not had this rehearsal just one day prior, with his father-in-law, recounting all the ways that God had supplied provision, all the ways that God had carried them through that, all the ways that God had done miraculous things. Had Moses not gone through that recital, that, that, that reenactment of all the favor of God, I don't know if he could have received in that moment this sort of correction. I think, because I think he's a human and he's like me, and we see Moses get angry all throughout the book of Exodus, I think like what I would say there is like, seriously, bro? 
you've only been doing this for a day. You don't know what you're talking about. You, you weren't there whenever I hit the rock with my stick and water came out. Who are you anyway? You are a pagan priest. If you hadn't heard from me the good news, you would still be worshiping false gods. Moses doesn't puff his chest up. He doesn't push back. He doesn't persist in his hubris and his ego. He does what his father-in-law says. He's being made open and aware to the fact that in this moment, I have to accept my limitations. I have to accept the fact that I am not omniscient. I am not all gifted. I am not the one who can be everywhere all the time. I, too, by faith, have to learn to trust. And one of my favorite books on this whole idea is a book called Sensing Jesus by Zach Swine. And Zach says in that book that we Christians are tempted to really three ever-so-present temptations all the time. And he says it's the three temptations that plague really the scriptures of human, the human race. We're tempted to be the know-it-all, the fix-it-all, or the everywhere-for-all. Those three temptations are always lurking around the corner. And it's how we find ourselves burned, up, burned out. It's how we find ourselves losing heart. And he said, so the know-it-all is the person who believes. There's a fundamental disbelief in the, in the, the, the trust in God's knowledge. They, they believe that deliverance, salvation, sanctification, spiritual maturity is always just one Google search away. There, there's one, one rock that can be turned over, one insight that we can gain. There's one you know, expert that we can talk to. That if we just flip that script, if we just get that information, then we will, in fact, be able to do what we want to do and not to trust God to do something for us. The know-it-all, in other words, is tempted to believe that salvation is possible through knowledge. And in that book, uh, Zach says that, look, this, is a, this has been the, the, the temptation that's plagued the human race from the very beginning. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. He says, we've always been tempted to believe that we could be like God, knowing He writes, how come so much of our Christian knowledge robs us of joy, wonder, awe, play, dependence, and the need to learn and be humble? How do we get to the place where we forget that there was a time that we didn't know what the gospel of John was, much less how to find it in the Bible or how to read it when we did? What is it about how we Christians sometimes view growth in knowledge that enables us to belittle or demean or judge or confound or overwhelm a person who's opening his Bible for the first time? The haunting answer is that the serpent temptation, serpent's temptation still whispers to us, you will be like God, knowing. Like Adam and Eve, we too are tempted to know as God knows and to take his superior position of knowledge when relating to others. This morning, you may be on the verge of burnout because you're trying to be the know-it-all. You really have believed that you're, you're just one Google search away. You're one follow away. There's, someone's going to throw something up on Twitter or Facebook this afternoon that's just going to break your world open. And then you're going to know what your ignorant neighbor doesn't know. And you're going to be able to deliver yourself in the day of judgment. And so for the know-it-all, repentance looks like coming to the end of believing that you can know all things. It's what Moses knows way more about Yahweh than Jethro. That's not even debatable. Jethro is clueless. Yet, Moses is able to check his hubris and say, maybe the old man's onto something here. Maybe I should listen to and heed his words. Then there's the fix-it-all. The fix-it-all is tempted to believe that he can master all the gifts and become all things to all people. You're just one talent away. You're one ability away from being able to actually be the deliverer, your own Savior and Lord. And the, the fix-it-all denies the fact that, the, that God has gifted the body of Christ with a multitude of gifts such that we would become interdependent upon one another. 
such that we would experience our weakness. And instead of turning back on ourselves and becoming self-sufficient, we would look to others and ask for help. John Calvin's commentary on uh, the spiritual gifts and the Institute of Christian Religion, he talks about this. He says, Thus we are warned that in the most excellent deeds of men there is always some defect, and nothing exists so perfect that is without blemish. Therefore, those who are set to rule the people should know that however devotedly they perform their office, their best plan, if it be examined, leaves something to be desired. Also, it's worth noting that no mortal possesses the maximum of every kind of gift or is capable of undertaking everything at once, however great and varied his talents. The servants of God should learn to measure their strength. When they greedily take on too many jobs, they may well crack up. Oh, John, he was onto something. If we take on too much, we very, very well may just crack up in the end. And then the everywhere for all is the person who's tempted to believe that they're not limited by space. That space doesn't really apply to them. And in a Zoom world where we're seduced into believing, yeah, I can just jump on a conference call and I can solve this problem on the other side of the world. Just give me a minute. I'll take care of it. This is an ever-present temptation for all of us. So what do we do? I think like Moses, we've got to open ourselves up to the possibility that we have limitations. Not only open ourselves up to the possibility of it, we've got to embrace those limitations. We've got to see those as God's good design so that we can grow in faith. Because if we won't accept our limitations, we're always going to aspire to be like God. And the end of that road is always going to be burnout and despair. And you will only be what God has called you to, to be when you realize what you are not. That's a fundamental fact of the scriptures from beginning to end. We will only become who God has called us to become when we realize what we are incapable of becoming in in and by our own power and might. A sick man unaware of his own condition is in great danger. And so we see Moses now, whenever he's opened up to the possibility that he has limitations, he's not failing the people by by putting other people in in charge and in responsibility. He's actually exercising true faith. He's choosing humility over hubris. He's believing that God can and will use other people. He's not being motivated by his inflamed insecurities. Are you trying to tell me, Jethro, that I'm incapable of doing this? Who do you think you are? No. He realizes maybe there's something to this. Maybe this is... Maybe this is what it means to, to follow Yahweh. And I think for Christians, this is a microcosm of what it means for us to follow Jesus. This is the essence of salvation. We have to learn to yield our life to his life. We have to learn to accept our dependence. It's the fundamental precept of, of all of discipleship is realizing, I don't, I don't know the way my life was supposed to turn out. When I've been in control of my life to my own in my own assumptive, presumptive ways, it always ends in disaster and wreckage. So maybe someone knows better than me who wants to lead me into what full life looks like. It's the basis of becoming a Christian. There's no version of following Jesus where you or I end up the hero. The hero has already died and rose again. Which brings us to the last point that I think that we really need to ponder and consider this morning if we're going to be a people who guard our heart in the, in the life in the wilderness that we're living. We've got to learn to ask for help. I grew up in a, in a culture, kind of, uh, you know, the, I've read some about like New Zealand, they have the tall poppy culture where if anyone got too big for their britches, they always got cut down. I grew up sort of in a similar culture and my, you know, my dad would, would have said probably until the day he died that if you were a person who asked for help, you, you're weak and you're dependent uh, and you're not worth your salt. Like you, you just need to get on down the road. And so I was reared in a world that said self-sufficiency was the idea of what true humanity and true masculinity could be and should be. Like, if you can't do it on your own, you don't need it. 
if you have to ask someone else for it, it's, it, it's weakness. And so there may be nothing more revolting to me in the scriptures than this idea that, no, accepting your limitations mean look, means looking at another human in the eye and saying, I don't have what it takes to do all of this, and I need you to help me. And there's something about the way God has designed the, the people of faith to operate that this is imp- not just imperative, this is, this is essential. Without this, we fall apart. We've got to learn to ask for help. So Jethro's solution to Moses is, hey, listen to me. I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Look for able men who are able to carry on these tasks. Yes, you have the role of the mediator. Very big disputes where the law is being adjudicated. We need you to do that. But there's lots of other things where you need to look at other people and say, I need your help. I'm empowering you to do some of this job. And perhaps there's no more powerful words in the scriptures to guard our hearts than this idea. These three words, I need help. So let me ask you this morning, when was the last time you looked into the eyes of another human being and admitted your weakness or failure? When was the last time you looked at another person and said, I need your help with this? When was the last time you put yourself in a state of dependence? Because fundamentally, I believe that people are going to have to be given the right, the green light, to speak truths into our life, to address the areas where we may in fact burn ourselves out and others as well. And the only way we're going to get there is whenever we can say, you know what, I'm weak in this area. I'm, I'm struggling in these ways. It's why James would say in the New Testament, confess your sins one to another, not so that you'll be forgiven, but so you will be healed. Weakness is a part of faith. And learning to admit that you need help is how we all begin to actually move forward and grow. Can you imagine the countercultural impact of the body of Christ if we became a people who, like Paul, could say, I've learned to rejoice in my weakness? Because it's whenever I'm weak that his strength shows up and supplies for me above and beyond whatever I, whatever I could have accomplished for myself. Will today be the day that you accept your limitations and ask someone for help? Father, that's our hope and our prayer, that by faith we could be a people who learn to be interdependent, learn that you've given us certain gifts and capacities to be a resource for others, but also learn that we have limitations where you've designed other people to excel so that they can be for us what we can never be for ourselves. And Father, would we, would we be able to foster a heart of humility, uh, uh, let go of the ego and hubris that says, if it is to be, it's up to me, and to learn to trust not just you, but trust others as well to be your body and to, to be your hands and feet in, in ways that we could have never done in our own power and might. And Lord, would this all be to the end that we are constantly made aware of your love and your power towards us. You make that most known to us to the person of Jesus, and that's the name we pray in this morning. Amen.